0: Our gospel reading comes to us from the gospel according to John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with their hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? And for your, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the Twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. When she had said this, she went and called her sister sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. So Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So on my dad's side of the family, there was this joke that some of the adults always played on the kids. Uh, It was the men in particular. Uh, So my dad and my uncle Fred, which was his brother, uh, pretty much every year we get together uh, for Christmas at my grandpa's house on that side. Um, One of them would always come up to all the kids and they would have two closed fists. And they'd say, pick a hand, right? (laughs) Pick one hand, they'd open it up and it would be empty. Okay, just part of the game, right? Uh, But then if you pointed to the other hand, they would open up their hand, and resting in their palm was a big, wet peach pit. And we'd always look at them and go like, what What is that? Like, thanks. Uh, And my dad and my uncle Fred, what they would do is they would look us straight in the eye, and they would say, I'm just preparing you for life. What? (laughs) We're like six years old. Like, we clearly don't get that. Uh, But you see, one thing about my dad's side of the family, aside from the fact that they were kind of melancholic, apparently, and had a dark sense of humor, uh, but a lot of the men had kind of a tough go in life. Uh, In particular, it seemed like both my dad and my uncle Fred were always battling some sort of health issue. Uh, they both went through kidney failure in their 30s. Uh, they both had major heart attacks in their, bo- in their 40s. Uh, they both had these bodies that just seemed like they were destined to die. And so when it came to my dad in particular, I think I've actually, maybe I've shared this before, maybe I haven't. Uh, but he, for as long as I could remember, he was always battling some sort of skin cancer. And the thing about it, it wasn't melanoma, just like the bad kind, right? Uh, it was just squamous cell carcinoma, if you're familiar with that. It's super common, and one thing to know about it, it has a 99% survival rate. Uh, So my dad was going through this, like, all right, dad's got one more thing, right? We're not worried about it. Uh, And yet, because of the kidney transplant and being on immunosuppressant drugs, uh, that meant he couldn't really fend anything off. And so at a particular point, uh, these little skin cancers that we thought were minor started to get out of hand. Uh, When I was 13, middle of eighth grade, my dad had a major skin graft done uh, where they removed a significant portion of his scalp and replaced it with skin from his thigh on his leg. And the thing is, no one ever told me what was going on. Uh, But shortly after that, he started undergoing heavy bouts of radiation treatment. You see, I was confused by that. If only because on the one hand, my dad had had skin cancer for 10 plus years, like almost my whole life, and it never seemed like that big of a deal. But on the other hand, now he was going to the hospital all the time. And it seemed like it was getting really serious. And so I remember this one night, I was upstairs in bed. I was supposed to be sleeping, right? You're supposed to be asleep. Uh, And yet, not asleep, I could hear my parents talking downstairs. And so what I did is I crept over to the edge of the landing, and I just sat in and listened. What I could hear uh, was my dad crying downstairs. It was unmistakable. I'd never heard him cry in my life. And he's just saying to my mom over and over again, I don't want to die. And I'm just sitting there. And as you could imagine, my world is falling apart. And so what I did starting that night is I just started praying. And the thing is, we weren't much of a church family. I've shared that before. Uh, And if I can just vouch for the benefit of a Christian preschool, Monica would love this part of the sermon, right? Uh, But I had gone to Bethlehem Lutheran over in Canyon Country. And for that reason, even though we were only a family that went to church on Christmas and Easter, uh, I was totally familiar with the fact that we could pray, right? Over situations like this. And at the same time, I was totally convinced uh, that God was going to answer. And so I just started praying. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I'll be honest, I've never prayed so hard in my entire life. And the thing about it is my dad during that time just got worse, and worse, and worse. Uh, To the point that right after Christmas in 1997, he got put on home hospice care. And on a windy night in the middle of January, he died. Uh, He was 51. I was 14. Our family was crushed. And so that night, one of the pastors from Grace Baptist came to our house. One of our family friends was super involved there. She called him, invited him over. He came to the house. And at one point, I remember he came into my room to pray. I'll be honest, I didn't want to pray. And so instead, I just kept asking, why? Why? Like, why did this happen? That's what I kept saying over and over again. Because not only did it seem like God didn't do anything, but it also seemed like there was nothing good that could ever come out of this. And so here's why I share that. It's two reasons. Uh, One is I think almost all of us in this room have had this experience. I'm not saying our stories are the same, right? Maybe it happened at a different age, but what I am saying is we've been in the midst of losing someone we love, and even if we pray the hardest that we have ever prayed, God does nothing. And it's like, why, right? Why would a God who is the author of everything good, which we believe that, right, make the end of the story something absolutely horrible? You see, the second reason I share this is that is precisely the problem being posed in this passage. So if we can go to that, we're going to jump into it. What it is, is this guy Lazarus who's gotten incredibly sick. Uh, In fact, he's pretty much on the verge of dying at this point. And so what happens is these people go to Christ and they tell him, he whom you love is ill. And you see, what they're doing in that instance is they are, in fact, praying. doesn't seem like that, but they're praying. Uh, Meaning they're going to God himself and they're saying, Please help. We love this person. We don't want them to die. You love this person too. And so do something, we're saying. And I don't know, you'd imagine that Jesus is just going to immediately go help, right? Great physician, creator of the human body. He has been healing people left and right. He's just going to swoop right in and fix everything, right? And yet, what does he do? It is so weird. It says he intentionally just stays put. In other words, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't answer the prayer. He doesn't comfort the family. Most of all, he does not prevent Lazarus from dying. He just... Let's it happen. And it's like, why? Why would he do that? It's frustrating. Yet here's the thing. He gives a reason. He does give a reason. It's in verse four, right at the beginning of our reading. And I'm just going to warn you, it's going to sound harsh, guys. It does not sound friendly. We're going to kind of unpack it the rest of the sermon, right? Uh, but what he says in verse four, he says, this illness does not lead to death, is what he says. And then he said, it "Is for the glory of God. Which, it doesn't lead to death, like, Lazarus died. What is he talking about? And yet what Christ is saying is even then, even when someone you love dies, this illness does not lead to death. Meaning, it's not the end. Maybe that's what the enemy wants to use it for. And yet in the presence of Christ, the point and the purpose of death is open, to open up the door for the glory of God to be on display. And that phrase, the glory of God, it's all over the Bible and it's kind of hard to understand. So I'm going to just kind of dig into it for one second. Uh, what, what is the glory of God? It's the, something about the nature of God. Uh, it's something about the character of Christ. It's something about who he is and what he does that is so beautiful and perfect and good that it makes you want to worship him. That it makes you want to trust him, that it makes you want to fall down and surrender your life to him is what the glory of God is. And so what Christ is saying is all the evil of this life, God's going to use it to reveal his glory. Which is still a little weird. And so what we're going to do for the rest of this, I want to look at how that is. Uh, Meaning, I want to look at what gets revealed about God and about Christ in the midst of our own suffering and sadness. What is God trying to show us? And it's going to be two things that get revealed, both of which we see in our reading. And so just to start with the first, this is going to seem kind of random. uh, But the world that the gospel went into, when the gospel went into the ancient world, uh, they had this view of God that was rooted predominantly in Greek philosophy. And You see, one of the things Greek philosophy said about God is he's, quote-unquote, impassable, is what they would say. What that word impassable means, uh, just means that whatever happens to you, you're just not affected by it. Impassable. Uh, you don't cry, you don't get emotional, you don't feel much of anything at all is what it means to be impassable. And what they would say, the glory of God is that he is impassable. Meaning, you suffer, but he's not affected. It's great, right? And so what that means, kind of a natural consequence of that, is that if you and I want to be godly, if we want to be like God, that's how we should be too in this life. Unaffected. Uh, So you can see how stoicism kind of naturally flowed out of this, right? Uh, If God himself is kind of a stoic in the face of suffering and death, then we should be too, right? And so the basic message, if I can... They probably wouldn't put it this way, but I'm going to say it anyway. They would just say, toughen up and move on, is what they would say. Or maybe they would just say, be positive, right? Turn that tragedy into a triumph. In fact, I was looking at, so maybe you're thinking like, that's nothing like us, right? That's just the ancient Greeks. And yet, no. I feel like that is such a pervasive thought in our culture today. And so I was looking it up this past week, just trying to get some data on this. Uh, when someone you love dies, especially like immediate family, uh, what psychologists will say is you, you need upwards of a full month of mourning before you even begin to enter back into life. Okay, a full month. Uh, what's fascinating is when I read that, go to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses dies, what do the people do? They mourn for... A month. Book of Numbers, Aaron dies. How long do they mourn for? A month. Modern America, Bureau of Labor Statistics, what do they recommend you mourn for? Three days. Not even a full week. So you just think about this. Your husband dies. Your wife dies. You lose a parent. You miscarry a child. And three days later, you're going to be normal? It's not how we were made. So when the gospel went into this world, what it revealed is that this God that they brought to the people was incredibly different from the God that they thought was God. That kind of makes sense. Uh, That God is actually not impassable, that God actually is affected, that God actually does care, that He actually cries was what the gospel said. And where you see that most fully, although it's spoken of throughout the Old Testament, where you see it most fully is in the face of Jesus Himself, right? And so you go to our reading, and right after Lazarus had died, Christ is on his way to the tomb. Um, What he does is he asks, Where have you laid him? He wants to know, right? He wants to go to Lazarus' tomb. And so in response, what they say, want us to hear this verse, they say this phrase, they say, Come and see. Come and see. And the thing is, maybe you've heard that phrase. Have you heard that phrase in the Gospels before? It's actually from the beginning of John chapter 1, is where we first hear it. Same exact wording. It's when these disciples. These same disciples in today's passage, it's when they first came across Christ. They met him. And one of the first Christ, things Christ says to them, he says, Come and see. So he's the one saying it, Come and see. And you see what that is it's an invitation into his own life, which is incredible, right? Like this beautiful invitation, come and see the life of Christ. And yet here's the thing. In today's passage, that invitation is reversed. And what I mean by that is instead of Christ inviting his disciples to come and see, this time his disciples are inviting him to come and see. This is verse 34. They say to him literally the same words he had said to them, come and see. And what are they inviting him into? They're inviting him into their pain. It's the tomb of Lazarus they're talking about. And so they invite him into that suffering, come and see. And what happens when Christ enters into our suffering and sadness? Verse 35, Jesus weeps. He wept. You lose someone you love. Your life kind of unravels on you. Uh, you're faced with these circumstances that you neither wanted for yourself nor know how to handle. And what does Christ do? He enters into that and he weeps. And you see, that reveals something about the glory of this God, namely, that he is not some sort of distant, disinterested deity. It's not who he is, but instead he is a 100% sympathetic, suffering kind of savior. Who before he works something new out of our pain, and we're going to get to that in a second, but before he works something new out of our pain, he weeps over the brokenness of our life. God is near to the brokenhearted, is Psalm 34. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. You see, that is... His glory. It's His glory. That He is not unaffected by the pain we feel, but that He willingly bears our burdens Himself. And so, just kind of one quick application before we move on to the second thing. If you want to kind of logic this out, uh, what that means is we don't need to be Stoics, guys. (laughs) We do not need to be Stoics. Uh, We should feel the fallenness of this world. And we should cling to the one who weeps over it. Let's go to the second thing. Uh, so I shared this yesterday at the memorial service for Lynn Putnam. So if you were here yesterday, this is going to sound very familiar. It's fine. Um, but this past summer, for a couple days, I went up to a monastery in the desert. And it's like, oh man, that story again. He's talking about the monastery. The time. Talk about it all the time, right? Um, but I went up there for a couple days. Um, One thing I haven't mentioned is when I was up there, um, one day I was having lunch with one of the monks. Um, We were having this conversation, mid-conversation, he says to me, if you want to see a modern miracle, you should really hike up to the cemetery. And he didn't explain at all what he meant about that. Um, He just said, go up there and look. Uh, And so later that afternoon, I made the hike up, and it's about a 20-minute hike up into the hills. Someone after yesterday said, you said it was a 20-mile hike. And I'm like, whoa, that makes me sound pretty rugged, right? (laughs) 20 minutes up into the hills, uh, but it's still, it's out in like the middle of nowhere, right? Now you're looking out, total middle of nowhere. But you see, the second I get up there, I can see exactly what he is talking about. You see, because just last fall, there was that bobcat fire, if you remember that. And it was one of the biggest fires we've had in a really long time. Well, it Burned around places where people don't live, so no one really thought about it. Uh, but it was one of the biggest fires we've had, we've had. And the thing is, the monastery sits right in that area where the fire was. And what had happened is the fire had totally ravaged everything around there. Uh, everywhere you look, it's just a bunch of burnt Joshua trees. It's just a bunch of dead bushes. It's just a bunch of rocks with black all over them. And so literally all over the place, there's evidence of a fire. And yet here's the thing. What that fire had done is it had gone all the way up to the edge of the graves And then it just totally stopped. The thing is, if you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe the graveyard is different. No, it's not different from the area that surrounds it. Not at all. Uh, It's the same exact vegetation. There is no wall separating the graves from anything outside of it. There's no difference in the terrain. There were no firefighters like beating back the fire from overtaking the seminary. Instead, cemetery, not the seminary. Uh, Instead, the fire came all the way up to the edge of the graves, and then almost as if something stood in its way, it stopped. And so just to put it out there, what do you think about that? Is it a modern miracle, yes or no? Um, I don't know. I tend to be kind of skeptical myself, and maybe some of you are skeptical. I see some head shaking yes. Uh, However, one thing I'll say about it, even though I'm kind of skeptical, is it caught my attention. Totally caught my attention. And you see, in particular, what caught my attention is God has actually promised that that same phenomena is going to be present in the lives of his people. What I mean by that, something God has promised repeatedly in his word, is even if the fire of our trials totally surrounds us, for those who know him, they will not be harmed. In fact, if I can read some verses that speak to this, Psalm 91.7, it's talking about facing death, Is Psalm 91, and what it says is, a thousand may fall at your right side, 10,000 at your left side, but it will not come near you. Think about that cemetery, right? Uh, in other words, no matter what happens to you, no matter what circumstances you are dealt, you yourself will not be harmed. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5 is literally talking about the, quote unquote, fire of a trial. That's what it talks about. And what it says is you're going to be, quote, shielded by God's power in the midst of that. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, right in the midst of that trial, your outer self might be wasting away, but your inner self is going to be renewed day by day. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all potential great names for my second child. Uh, they get thrown into a fire, and what happens? Nothing. Well, Actually, one thing, there's a fourth person. Who shows up in the fire. And it does not harm them. And you see, then you go to today's passage and one of the things Christ says, remember like, who's that fourth person? So one of the things Christ says, uh, those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. Even though they die, yet shall they live. The thing about this, If you go to like kind of Greek language type stuff, there are two different words for life in the Greek language, or two main different words. Uh, One of them is bios. That's where we get our word biology. Um, Bios is just physical existence, right? Breathing in this church right now, we are bios. And yet the word that Christ uses for life in our passage is not that word. It's another word. It's this word zoe. It's where we get the name Zoe. And what zoe means is that you're not just existing but that you're actually alive. And we know the difference, right? You're actually alive. Even if some fire of a trial is ravaging and ruining your bios, your zoe cannot be touched. That's what this passage is saying. In other words, even if your body is falling apart, even if a horrible circumstance is surrounding you, even if there's a horrible disease inside of you, even if your life or the life of someone you love is in the midst of being lost right now, if Christ who is himself life, that Zoe, lives inside of you, then that fire of a trial, yeah, it's going to come right up to the edge but it can't touch you. Bios be damned, your Zoe will live. And so if I can circle back to something, I mentioned my dad at the beginning, right? Uh, just a couple months before he died, what a family friend of ours, same one actually who invited the pastor over to our house, uh, a family friend of ours had invited us to go to church up at the Grace Baptist. And you see, as we started going to church, my dad came back to faith during that time. And I don't say he came to faith. He was raised in the faith. He just got too busy. Don't get too busy. Just side note. Uh, but he got too busy. He drifted away. But the point is, he came back to faith. And one thing I'll say is, as he did, those last two months of his life, he was alive in a very different way than I had ever seen. You could just see it. And so whereas hearing my dad cry from the top of the stairs, uh, that obviously imprinted itself on me in a way that I will never forget. My other indelible memory from growing up is the day that we walked into my dad's room, the day that he died, our family walked into the room and he just smiled. looking death right in the face. And he smiles. Fire of a trial surrounding him, closing in on him. And yet it couldn't touch him. And the thing is, I'm not saying now he wanted to die. That's not it. Wasn't the case. But what I am saying, or better yet, what Christ himself is saying, is those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they die. Live Zoe. And so when I think about my dad, or what I said yesterday, is when I think about Lynn Putnam, or when I think about all the people in whom God has been at work in the midst of their trials, I would make the case it's a modern miracle, is what we're seeing. It's actually not modern at all. It's something God has been doing from the get-go with his people. The point of which is to point us to the Savior who in the fire of every trial that you face is totally present. He's not absent. He's totally present. He is incredibly powerful and he is protecting and preserving the lives of those he loves. And that is the glory of God that we see. And not just that he weeps over our suffering, but that he also works new life in the midst of it. Now, so today is All Saints Sunday. If I can just kind of wrap up with something about that. Um, there's one thing we could say about this thing called saints. It's kind of like a category in churches, right? Or at least some churches, it's a category. Um, there's a sense in which I would say every saint of God is actually a miracle of God. Every saint is a miracle of God. And what I mean by that, it's someone in whom God has worked something inexplicable. And it makes you want to know what's behind it. That's what a miracle is. And so I know we tend to think of a saint as someone who lived a perfect life, right? A saint is someone who is perfect. Yet, no, that's not the biblical view of a saint. Uh, the biblical view of a saint is that it's someone who points. Someone who points. You see, because that's what miracles do. Uh, the, the Bible's word for miracles is signs. If you think about the nature of signs, they are always pointing to something greater than themselves. And so the question I just want to put out there in closing, and was God is at, when God is at work in his people, not just weeping over their suffering, but also working new life in the midst of their trials, what is that meant to be pointing us to? What's it pointing us to? And I think you could t- say like, Jesus, duh. Like, right. um, and that's not wrong. I'm not saying that. And yet more fully, what I want to say is what it's pointing to is something that Christ is going to do that he hasn't yet done. At least not for you and me. Meaning just like he did for Lazarus, calling him by name out of his grave. The promise we have is he is going to do that for each one of his people. He's the good shepherd. He knows his sheep by name. Someday he will call yours and you will rise. The thing is, I know a lot of people don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Like, no, that's totally impossible, right? And yet I believe it. I believe in the resurrection of the body. That's what we say in our creed. You see, part of the reason I believe it Is my dad people like lynn putnam and all the people i have met in this life in whom i have seen christ do something inexplicable if not impossible namely work new life in the midst of their death and what i'm saying this morning is i believe we ought to see those things as signs and there are signs all around us. Every spring is a sign. Every saint is a sign. Every sinner set free is a sign that someday Christ will, on a much greater and grander scale, work life out of death and set us free from every bond. And when he does, the glory of God will be that he has not only wept over our suffering, not only worked new life in the midst of it, but that he has also now wiped away every tear. at which point every prayer will get its answer. Every why will have its explanation. And every tragedy really will be turned to triumph. And yet for now, we wait. We wait. And we see these things in a mirror dimly. And yet even that faded or blurry vision of the glory of God at work in the lives of his people you can see his glory in his saints, right? Even that faded vision I would suggest is still so beautiful and perfect and good that it should make us want to worship him. And it should make us want to trust him. And it should make us want to fall down and surrender our lives to him even in the midst of our pain. And then perhaps too, we too would become saints. Signs, that is. Pointing to something far greater and more glorious than ourselves. Now with that, let's pray. As our worship team comes forward. Lord God in heaven, uh, we thank you for your work inside of your people. Uh, That you've given us these signs of your glory, that you are a God of compassion, that you're a God of power, that everything the enemy wants to use to lead us into death and despair, you actually use to lead us into life and freedom. And so, Lord God, teach each one of us, help each one of us to walk by that faith in the midst of our trials. And to so cling to Christ and his promises that we would be conformed to Christ and his glory. We pray this in his name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.